0: This is Rainmaker FM, the digital marketing podcast network. It's built on the Rainmaker platform, which empowers you to build your own digital marketing and sales platform. Start your free 14-day trial at rainmaker.fm slash platform. That's rainmaker.fm slash platform. Greetings, super friends. My name is Sonia Simone, and these are the confessions of a pink-haired marketer. For those of you who don't know me yet, I'm a co-founder and the chief content officer for Rainmaker Digital. I'm also a champion of running your business and your life according to your own rules. As long as you don't lie and you don't hurt people, this podcast is your official pink permission slip to run your business or your career exactly the way you think you should. And as always, I will have some additional resources for you, some extra links, maybe some cool free stuff. You can pick all of those up by going to pinkhairedmarketer.fm. So today it's time again for Things I Love, Things I Hate. This is, I don't know, number three or four in the series of these. And today, as I have been doing with this series, I'm going to share a lot of details about the love part and then for the hate part, instead of, you know, I, I'm not that interested in, in getting mad at a business or shaming anybody, but I'm going to talk about some principles and practices that strike me as being things that don't work very well. And this week in particular, I like the business that's on the hate part of the segment, but I feel like they're doing themselves a disservice because they're clinging to a business practice and it does not look like it is serving them. So before we start with that, let's start with some love. And um, my love for this week is... The founder of Moz. Moz is an SEO software service, at least that's what it is right now. The company has been a couple of things over its lifetime. Uh, and in particular, I've just been really struck by. Um, their founder's radical transparency. So I wrote about this last week on Copy Blogger, and Rand also did a really excellent interview with Brian Clark. So I will give you a link to that in the show notes. That's from the Unemployable podcast. And I got to say, every time I run across Rand, and I do, you know, on Twitter, people tweet his stuff and I follow him. Every time I run across something he writes, it kind of startles me. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk around all kinds of businesses, especially businesses that do a big portion of what they do on the web about transparency. You know, so transparency, you know, and sometimes like it's non-identical twin authenticity are buzzwords and they're buzzwords and they're talked about, I think, for one important reason. And that is this, if you lie on the internet you will get caught. So this is just about as close to being a natural law, you know, like gravity as you can get on the web because of the nature of the web. You know, that word web in its very nature points to the fact that everything's connected to everything else. So that's what makes the internet work. It's been designed that way since way back In the creation of DARPAnet, it was designed to be interconnected so that you couldn't take any one node down through an act of sabotage because it was so connected that it was inherently resilient. Virtually everything on the web is connected to other points on the web and it connects at multiple, multiple points. So if you say something on your little itty bitty private blog that has eight readers, um... And that thing turns out not to be a true thing. It turns out to not be aligned with what you're actually doing. Then you probably get away with it for a while. But the instant you start to get better known. So like as soon as you do anything that is remarkable, remarkably good or remarkably bad, then everything you've done so far starts to get shared. And that's how people get fired And that's how people get sued for posting some bad behavior on a private Facebook account that only has a few friends or posting it on a Twitter account that has a dozen followers. And, you know, these things have happened. We've all seen these stories where somebody has a Twitter account, they have 10 or 12 followers, and all of a sudden they're facing a very steep lawsuit or they've lost their job because of something they've said. Privacy online. And I think we all know this. And if you don't know it, you need to learn it is very, very hard to maintain because your privacy is only as strong as the promises of every single person who has access to see your stuff. So you have a couple of options. Option one is that you can be extremely consistent about taking measures to preserve your privacy. So for example, you might choose not to share uh, personal information, current photos, things like that about your family on the web. So if you make that choice, the thing that makes it work is that you're very consistent about it. You know, you don't only do it on a Facebook account that has a couple of friends. You just don't do it. And that, by the way, I think is a totally legitimate choice. Privacy is not the same thing as keeping secrets. I think we all have the right to keep parts of our lives private. I'm private about, you know, just my general personal life. Um, I don't particularly get into personal details online, uh, whether it's in a quasi-private setting like Facebook or a very public space like Twitter. Now, I'm very comfortable talking about personal feelings and personal emotional states, but I don't personally choose to share a lot of details about, um, you know, I'm kind of cagey about where I live and, um, you know, the world doesn't need to know my kid's name and my husband's name, stuff like that. Now, I'm sure some dedicated person could find out stuff about me, and that's, that's fine. I'm okay with that, but I don't go out of my way to share personal details. So everybody draws some kind of line. Sometimes, um, you know, people criticize transparency by talking about oversharing. So oversharing is a thing. We do not need oversharing. I don't need to see your sandwich every day. You know, we're good. I'm, I'm good. You can just have your sandwich in peace. Transparency is not about oversharing. Transparency is about sharing things that matter. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So, of course, one of the things a lot of us are private about is our vulnerabilities. So, you know, insecurity, if you have issues with depression or other, you know, cognitive situations that are causing you a lot of pain, grief, uncertainty, mistakes we make. And, you know, I think it's totally okay to be private about that stuff. That is your choice. You can choose how much to disclose and not disclose. The interesting thing is that sometimes you can claim a tremendous amount of power by revealing vulnerability. I hope you've all read the books by Brene Brown. She's really the champion of this. She's very smart about it, and she talks about it in an intelligent way that does discuss, you know, the difference between authenticity and oversharing and being Vulnerable or being transparent doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. Something that I have noticed is that choosing to be open about certain kinds of vulnerability, emotional vulnerability, insecurity, that kind of thing, does a couple of things. Maybe the most powerful is it unleashes this, you know, metric ton of energy that you've been using trying to pretend, you know, you were a lot tougher than you actually are. So in this context, let's talk a little bit about Rand. Um, he's very open about times when he was CEO of Moz, when he made, you know, poor business decisions, when he, um, he made a call and it wasn't the right call. And we all have blind spots. Every one of us has times when we do not follow our own advice. Rand just talks about them where most people don't talk about them. And he claims, in my opinion, a lot of power with that in a couple of ways. First, he diffuses the situation. You know, nobody can throw any of that at him because it's all open. It can't be weaponized. It can't be used against him because he beat them to the punch. Second, I think that, and this is the one that really makes an impact on me, and I do try and um, follow this kind of path. He opens up the opportunity to be of service and to be of value to other people who have made similar kinds of missteps or other people who might be on the verge of making an error that would be costly and difficult and could have serious repercussions. And he can help that person see more clearly by sharing his own journey, not just the pretty parts, but the whole thing. And of course, that's one of the reasons um, added to the fact that Rand Fishkin is just a really smart business owner, and he knows a lot of stuff, and he teaches it really well, but that transparency and the willingness to show you the whole picture and not just the pretty parts is a big reason why Brian Clark invited Rand to keynote our event in Denver, Colorado this October, and that is digitalcommerce.com slash summit if you want to check that out. Rand is going to give you the whole thing. So he's not going to give you some kind of, you know, Instagram, pretty, picture-perfect account of what goes on when you're actually running a business. So the other thing that struck me as I was, uh, you know, doing a little reading about Rand and reading some of the things he's written and some of the interviews he's given is when he talks about starting out with SEO. He's been in search engine optimization for a long time. And when he started, it was all about trade secrets. So, you know, SEO professionals would do all kinds of things to try and figure out how Google and the other search engines were working. And then the search engines on their part were insanely cagey about how they were ranking pages and how they were making those decisions algorithmically. And there was all kinds of reverse engineering and making educated guesses based on patent applications, a lot of, you know, trying to see in the shadows through to to the trade secrets. And there is, you know, a fair amount of that that still happens with SEO, both on the side of SEO professionals and the side of the search engines. But, you know, as Rand put it, it's, you know, the situation today is a pane of glass versus two tons of steel. So one of the insights that Rand had, uh, and he was joined back in the day by folks like Danny Sullivan over at Search Engine Journal, was to go ahead and publish any trade secrets that they found or they figured out. If they figured out something that seemed to work, you know, they went completely transparent with it. They went public with it. And again, not um, not 100%, but the search engines kind of followed suit, you know, so uh, someone like Matt Cutts over on Google started giving a lot of talks about, you know, things, um, things to do to rank better in the search engines. And again, it wasn't an era of perfect transparency on the search engine side, but it was a lot more so than they had been before. And so, over time, instead of SEO, search engine optimization, being about a lot of tricks and kind of weird, dodgy little things that you would do to try and and trick search engines into ranking you, it started to become about, largely about, I'm not going to say 100% about, but good SEO strategy started to be uh, in very large part about publishing better content instead of looking for 10,000 different ways to to trick the algorithm. And, you know, coming around now to 2016, honestly, that's less trouble You know, I said something a long time ago in a post about SEO, don't take shortcuts. They take take too long. At the end of the day, um, it's probably easier to actually just create something that's worth ranking and then work on optimizing that and being smart about that than it is to try and trick the search engines into ranking content that's really just completely crummy. So this got to rattling around in my head and I thought about people like Rand Fishkin and other people like Rand, who took this idea of trade secrets and turned it on its head. So they took all the secrets, the tools of the trade, you know, the the dark knowledge, and they revealed pretty much all of it. And it turns out that no matter how many good SEO blogs you read, uh, you know, it's still work. (laughs) And it's still work that requires somebody who's thoughtful and strategic and knows what they're doing. And people will pay really good money to hire your company to do that for them or to purchase tools from you that make that work um, less repetitive and more, you know, more efficient. So you can give away all the secrets, but a lot of times there's still something left that's highly valuable that people will very happily pay you for. So the idea that I think is worth looking at for most businesses is just look at, the possibility of uncoupling your business model from keeping trade secrets. Because remember, secrets are really hard to keep online, even if they're not malicious secrets, even if they're not, you know, secrets about something bad. Any kind of secret knowledge, any kind of secret information tends to leak from one point to another point to another. And at some point, the secret finds open water and it's gone. So a couple of thoughts if you are not as brave as Rand Fishkin. I'm pretty sure I'm not as brave as Rand Fishkin. Um, one thing I recommend if you're talk if you're thinking about vulnerability and you're thinking about being more forthright about the negative stuff as well as the positive stuff. And don't be, you know, like don't be Eeyore. I mean, nobody likes Eeyore, right? Don't be constantly talking about everything that's crummy and never talking about the positive too. I think it's important to keep balanced. Just for me, this is what I found works well for me as a professional is I am all about, you know, fessing up to screw up in public. I have no problem with it, but I don't do it while I'm in the middle of a crisis. So if I'm in the middle of a thorny problem and, you know, business being business, a lot of times you're in the middle of some kind of a, a situation that's a little tricky to figure out. I am absolutely willing to be vulnerable about it and I'm willing to share and to get advice, but I don't get it from the crowd. I don't crowdsource it. I turn to the people who I feel have my back. I turn to people who uh, I trust, you know, who love and respect me and we work on a solution that makes sense. I don't go on Twitter and say, ah, you know, something's falling apart and I don't know what to do and, and then let the peanut gallery decide. I am totally willing to get on Twitter after the fact and say, um, God, you know, this was tough. This was a a really tricky situation. Um, I wasn't sure what to do. I felt really confused. I'm not sure I handled it well. And this is how it ended up. So I like to know the ending of the story before I share it. That's just me. You do not have to be the same as me, but um, it's it's a framework you might want to keep in mind. And of course, you know, it completely depends on the nature of the crisis. So um, if you are in a business, I uh, worked for a business and we went through an earthquake and the building fell down. Well, you know, at that point, what you do is you are a hundred percent, a thousand percent transparent about what you can do and what you can't do and what you're going to do next because your customers just want to know that, you know, you have a plan and you're moving forward. So it it depends on the situation and you have to use your good judgment and your good sense. To the hate part. I want to talk for a few minutes about a little online business that's trying really hard to maintain some trade secrets. And from my vantage point, it does not look to me like it's serving them well. So this is a company that has come up with a particular kind of drawing, like a particular way of sketching. And if you come see me in Denver this summer at the Digital Commerce Summit, I'll show some of the drawings to you. It's really, it's neat. They're they're cool. So these artists invented kind of a structure and a process for making this kind of drawing. And their business model is teaching their process to teachers, and then those teachers teach it to people like me who want to learn. So in some ways, they have really good momentum. They have a community of people who really think this kind of drawing is really, really uh, wonderful and even, you know, kind of have formed a bit of a tribe around it. They've also done some nice things with licensing. So I found out about this by buying this little kit of materials. So this little box that was decorated with these kinds of drawings and it really looked appealing and it had, you know, the kind of pens that you use and the kind of paper and, and the little materials. And this thing was completely irresistible. Like I saw it at my local art store and it just jumped into the basket, you know, all by itself which is a thing that happens quite a lot to me at the art store as things jump into the basket. So I get this kit and I think, this is awesome. So there's going to be instructions, right? So I open the box. No, no instructions on the box. Okay. So this is fine. This is cool. I go to the website. No instructions on the website either. It says, find a local teacher to show you how to make the drawings. Okay. So at this part, I'm kind of, I'm kind of laughing, but just You know, just for grins, I look up their listing of teachers and see who's teaching in my area. And there are two teachers in my area, and neither one of them is currently giving classes. And this is where I start to think that I'm seeing a business lesson here. So this company has a preconception about its business model. Their business model is that they give workshops to train the trainers, and then they also sell, like, the paper. But they forgot about the most important part of a train-the-trainer business model, which is that all of the revenue fundamentally comes from people like me, the eventual students, and you have to understand that person's path to purchase. So being a marketing-obsessed person like I am, I look around at different teachers who are trained in this method, and there's only a couple of them who are taking students, and I it looks to me, now I'm looking from the outside in, but it looks to me like a lot of the rest of them have, have given up, you know, did some, a lot of them have websites and they, they have like a section for classes, but there's nothing new they, they haven't given a class in a year, two years, three years. And I think it's because there's not enough being done to facilitate the customer journey that gets somebody like me interested in the ideas enough to go ahead and come on in and take a class face-to-face. So I use that term, customer journey, and we've written about it quite a bit. We get pretty in-depth on it, actually, in the certified content marketer training, because if you don't get it right, there's no fuel for the business. If you don't create the right paths and make those paths comfortable for people to come find you and and complete a transaction with you, there's no energy because there's no revenue. So in a nutshell, you have to know what the paths are that bring people from not knowing anything about you to making maybe uh, an initial purchase and then maybe making a larger purchase and right on through that, you know, having really good experiences the whole way So that they start to talk you up and they start to refer you and they do business with you again, all of that good stuff. So this little drawing company has certain kinds of drawings that they ask their teachers not to reveal like in a YouTube tutorial, you know, so that it's, it's a trade secret, right? You can only learn how to do the drawing by going to one of the live classes and that by its nature puts up barriers to customers, Now, if a barrier can be, you know, smoothly and reasonably navigated, that can be totally okay. I'm not saying trade secrets are are always a bad thing, but you have to understand that you're creating friction and you have to keep a close eye on it to make sure that the friction is not so great that it stops the process. Because, as we know, you can't keep secrets on the internet, right? So the reality is the instructions for how to make these drawings and, and how-to videos, and diagrams, and all kinds of things are all over the place. You can find them very readily on YouTube, you can find them on Pinterest, you can find them on Flickr, etc., etc. So you haven't actually kept your trade secrets at all. What you have done is muddy the waters a lot by not controlling the conversation, because you've allowed people to just kind of go out and just kind of get what they get on the open web, instead of creating some very positive, nurturing, enjoyable paths where you can actually control your message. So John Gilmore was one of the founders of the EFF, that's the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He had a quote way back in the day, and it was so prescient and it remains so true. The net interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. So when you try and keep trade secrets, um, Actually trying to keep them is very challenging, but creating friction, and in some cases enough friction to stop the forward movement altogether on your customer journey, that's really easy. So what to do instead? What you want to look for is how could you create a lot of paths that move the customer in a, in a pleasing way to the destination that you have in mind? So, for example, um, you know, Pinterest is controversial for visual artists. It's really challenging for visual artists. There's so much um, copyright violation going on. And so I think it's uh, a bit of a natural reaction for a lot of visual artists to look at Pinterest with a lot of suspicion. However, for a company like this, there are tons and tons of potential customers on Pinterest. If you can figure out a good path That takes them from there to where you are to explore what you're doing in more depth than just pinning something. And while you're finding these paths and making them a little wider and making them a little more comfortable and inviting, um, you can create a revenue model that allows people to make purchases, often small purchases, along the way, along the path. As I was writing this out, I was thinking of them as like lemonade stands, you know, on the side of the path. It might not be the big thing you sell. It might not be the main business model, but it's a little chance to kind of pause, refresh yourself, make a a small commitment along the way. And that brings people closer to you. It starts to create trust. It starts to create a feeling of belonging with your business. So I'll give you an example just that came to me off the top of my head about this company. A lot of the customers for this company don't have thriving teachers near them, sometimes because they might live in a rural area that doesn't have, you know, a city nearby, and sometimes because the customer journey is not bringing in enough new students for those teachers to keep them active. So maybe it would be wise to facilitate some great ways to let your certified teachers teach online you know, maybe the website for this drawing company becomes a virtual workshop space where their certified teachers are invited to come in, teach a class. Um, it's going to be limited because it's online, but on the other hand, it's a lot better than just sending them out to YouTube and saying, well, get what you get. And in particular with this model, you know, these workshops could be small and focused and inexpensive little $10 workshops on, you know, the different things, um, If you're learning to sketch, there's just certain things you need to learn, like how to have a composition that has strong lights and darks. That's a a thing everybody who's learning to sketch has to learn how to do. Whatever it is that you see people are having problems with, you can create a little workshop on that, which is, of course, one of the super, super nifty things about education as an online business model, because a lot of times you can put together these little mini products very quickly if you have the right tools um, to make it streamlined. At which point, you know, cough, Rainmaker Platform makes it really easy, just saying. So instead of pushing every student into a half-day face-to-face workshop at around $50, whether they want it or not, look for what students are looking for and how they're looking to get it. You know, if you can take somebody who would not take a live workshop at all for one of multiple reasons, and that person could take three or four $10 Many workshops a year, you know, all of a sudden, especially when you consider the lower cost of um, delivering the workshop, it starts to make a lot of business sense. And that person is much more primed to take the next step and maybe do a face-to-face workshop and they'll really get something out of it. So this lemonade stand model, it's what some people call the minimum viable product model, especially with um, education and information. Um, this is what successful online businesses do. You know, they create products. At first, those products are sometimes quite small. They solve a small problem first, uh, and they create products around what the customers are in the mood to buy. Not necessarily what they need. What are they in the mood to spend some money on? So that is what Rand Fishkin did with Moz. That is what we do at CopyBlogger and at Rainmaker Digital. Uh, Which is why we're always adding to our model. We're always creating new options and um, new ways of working through things. And we're always meeting our customers at different points and new points. The lemonade stand model is a lot more fun. It's a lot less frustrating because it actually works. So those are my thoughts today. Trade secrets, business models, lemonade stands, and transparency if you feel so moved to leave a star rating or a review on iTunes. If you happen to be an iTunes listener, that is hugely helpful. And a big hug and a kiss to the many, many of you who have already done that. And I'll see you next week. Take care.